doing a series where we're walking through uh, what we believe the Bible teaches are the relationships that you need in order to navigate the world. The world, I think, is getting more complex. And so if you have more uniform friendships, it's actually going to be uh, increasingly difficult to navigate the world. And so we're going through each week talking about the relationships that will help you grow uh, with examples from the Bible and those kinds of things. And today we're going to talk about a guy named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and he was an advisor to King David. And so to know Nathan, you really have to know King David. And King David is probably famous if you were a kid that went to Sunday school or something like that. King David is famous because he is the guy that uh, threw the rock and hit Goliath, the giant, and he fell down. Uh, so that's where we get like giant killers and those kind of slay the giant, those kinds of things. David actually did. Uh, and so David became king of, um, of God's people, of the nation of Israel and kind of Israel and Judah. And uh, if you're uh, familiar with the story, David was a king who was... Uh, all around great. Some people would say he was the greatest king, uh, maybe in history, maybe just in Israel's history. Uh, he was known for having a very, very close relationship with God, and he was a, a warrior. He killed giants. He protected the sheep when he was in the field from wild animals. Uh, he was also a musician. He played the harp, which sounds kind of prissy, but it was the most aggressive instrument they had. No offense, harp players. I'm sure you're very, very tough. <laughs> but uh, the harp in those days was similar to like an electric guitar. So he was kind of an Eddie Van Halen who could kill giants, if that helps any. Um, but uh, he, he wore less leather, I guess. Well, maybe the same amount of leather, not as tight. Uh, but the, uh, David also, uh, as he rose to become king, was kind of a smart guy, and so he had a lot of advisors around him. Like, not smart as in he knew everything, smart as in he knew he needed some people around him uh, who were aware of different things. So he had, like, a military advisors around him, and he had political advisors, and he had some uh, guys who were, like, actual warriors, and he had this band of guys who were, like, his lead fighters in war and those kinds of things. And David's uh, kingship was going along great. He uh, was writing uh, lots of songs. He, there's a book, a big book in the middle of the Bible called Psalms, which is a collection of David's uh, poems and songs. There's some other people in there, but most of them were written by David. And, uh, and he was just kind of going along, becoming great at what he was doing. The problem is, um, when you become great at what you're doing, you can start to believe that you're great not just great at what you're doing. And so one spring, and in the springtime, so you know, uh, springtime was kind of the harvest time because uh, just the way their uh, ecosystem worked. The kings would go out to war because you grow your own stuff and you harvest your own stuff and your people have enough, but then you go out to war to take somebody else's stuff, right? Because your stuff is never enough. You have to go and take over somebody else's city and take all their stuff. And so the kings would go out to war. But David had, in his own mind, risen to such a place that he didn't need to go out to war anymore. Uh, he could just send people to go out to war for him. So he was still the leader, just he had risen to such a place in leadership where he didn't believe he needed to actually do anything anymore. Just being himself was enough. And so the kings, and this, this story is told in 2 Samuel the kings, the, it was in the springtime when the kings would go out to war, but David did not. 
And uh, the story kind of begins with a foreboding tone because David did not go out to war. And so David was bored because all his king friends were out to war and he was left alone. And all his actual friends were out to war because that's what everyone did. And so he was walking around his palace and he went up on his roof and he saw, because he probably had tall roofs uh, and they would have like courtyards on their roofs, uh, a couple houses over, there was a woman who was having a bath on the roof. And these days, like, uh, bathrooms hadn't been invented. Like, the concept of a room inside the house where you do these things, because there's no electricity, doesn't make any sense at all. And so you would have kind of a private or a more private area on your roof where this kind of uh, bathroom activity would go on. She was bathing herself. And uh, David decided that he liked what he saw, and uh, he decided to send a messenger to go and get that woman. And he went and got that woman, and he brought her into his uh, palace, and he slept with her because he didn't go out to war. He was on his roof. He was bored. He was the king. He gets to do whatever he wants, and so he did whatever he wanted. The woman became pregnant. Uh, her name was Bathsheba, which if he knew her name beforehand, it probably would have ruined the image, right? But uh, it's not a very attractive name. Okay, so apologies to anyone named Bathsheba. All right. Apologies because your parents hated you. Why would you name your kids that? Um, but now if someone is named Bathsheba, this is the time you stand up and storm out and be like, I can't, uh, offended. It's james at albanygrove.com for later. <laughs> so Bathsheba goes home ends up she's pregnant. Uh, David can't let this news get out. And so he calls home Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and uh, brings him home and says, you've done a great job on the battlefield. Uh, we want to bring you home for kind of some R&R and uh, just have a talk about how it's going. There's all this shady stuff that David was doing. Hey, um, you might as well not go back until tomorrow, so why don't you stay at home tonight? Assuming that this was going to be David's cover. Uriah was in the field. He came home. David was hoping he would go home and be with his wife. Well, Uriah went and slept at the, uh, like at the gate, at the entrance, where this king's servants would have slept. He didn't go home. And that frustrated the king. Because the king is trying to cover up from his own sin. And so the king says the next day, well, why don't you stay here another day? And he throws a feast. And he gets Uriah country drunk at this feast, right? And so he's like, here, have some more. Here, have some more. You can't refuse the king. Here, have some more, right? Uriah is wasted out of his mind. He says, now go home. He go, and Uriah leaves, and he goes and sleeps where the servants sleep. He doesn't go home. This frustrates the king. Uriah leaves, goes back to the battlefield, apparently with quite a hangover. And uh, Uriah sends a message uh, sorry, David sends a message with Uriah. Uh, this is kind of the sick and twisted tragedy part of The message says to Uriah's commander, I want Uriah stationed at a part of the wall that's difficult, and when you attack, I want everyone to pull back and leave Uriah out there so that he is killed. He writes the message, rolls it up, puts his seal on it, hands it to Uriah, and Uriah walks back to the battlefield or rides back to the battlefield, hands this to his commander, and then leaves. And his commander reads it, stations him at a part of the wall that's rather dangerous, goes up, 
they attack. Uh, the cities were all walled cities that they were trying to attack, and the commander knew that this was a particularly difficult spot. They attack, everybody pulls back, Uriah and a few others are killed. They send a message back to David to let him know Uriah was killed. David goes and brings his widow into his home, and that's David's cover. So David sins, and then uh, sins by not going out to war. Then he sins through adultery. Uh, then he sins by getting someone uh, super drunk. Well, let's say he sins by cover, trying to cover his sin instead of repenting of his sin, because I think that would be a sin as well. Then he sins by getting someone drunk. Then he sins by, um, I think it's called conspiracy to commit murder. <laughs> it's a, maybe a war crime. David uh, makes one choice that leads to another choice and another choice and another choice and another choice. And you remember how I began this sermon, that David might be the greatest king ever? So at this point, you're either thinking, those other kings are terrible, like terrible, if this is best ever, or there has to be a turn in the story. There has to be something in the story that happens uh, where uh, somehow this makes sense because what Pastor James is saying is not anything near uh, what we would call a great king. This is the story of Nathan. Uh, Nathan, um, well is the king's advisor who is a prophet. And I'm going to read chapter 12 of 2 Samuel to you. It's going to be on the screen so you can read along if you want or if you have an app or you're writing things down. This is what it says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were, so this is Nathan talking, and he's going to tell a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little you lamb he had bought and he raised it and he grew up up with him and it grew up with him and his children it shared his food and drank from his cup it even slept in his arms it was like a daughter to him and now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him and instead he took the you lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man, instead of preparing a meal for the traveler from his own wealth, took from the poor man to, pre to prepare a meal. David heard the story and burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And here's maybe the best line in the Bible. Then David said to Nathan, you are the man. I know there's a lot of times we like to say, you're the man. But in a biblical sense, you never want to hear that. <laughs> Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul, who was an evil king who was trying to kill uh, David. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Who was, who was, who, that, that was the people they were battling. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me 
and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, your son, the son born to you, will die. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. Just, I mean, the way they tell that story, that's a little dig right there, that Uriah's wife had born to David. And he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. And he fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. And he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. And David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him? How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. And yes, they replied, he is dead. And then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went into his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him to me again? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Uh, I'm going to read verse 25 as well. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, to name the son Jedidiah, uh, which means the Lord loved him. Bit of a crazy story. This guy Nathan walks in, and he's famous for telling a story that gets David to show his ridiculousness that his sin brought on him. And then Nathan has this line, you are the man. Nathan is the guy who goes to David and says, this story is not good. The story that your life is telling is not good. And we're going to change that story. And we're going to I'm going to tell you a story in order to change your life story. There's a lot of people, uh, like, uh, I like to think of this person as an editor. And this is, uh, Nathan is like an editor. There's, some people would call him, what's, if you grew up like in a really Christian youth group, you have accountability partners. And those were the people that you lied to about how sinful you were. <laughs> uh, accountability partners are... Uh, this concept that, that works as long as you don't lie. And so they only really work when the other person 
Uh, is it condemning towards you when your accountability partner really believes the best for you and believes that with some changes in your life, you can be great? And so I want to use the word editor instead of accountability because an editor believes that what you have to say or the story that you're telling or the, 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 what your life is writing out is worth it, is worth reading, is worth hearing, is a message that other people should hear. And an editor will, you'll put something in, uh, I don't know if you've ever written papers or done things, uh, most of us don't publish books and have an actual editor in our life, but you write papers and there's certain professors who will mark it up, red, 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 or if you're a millennial, it's like green and happy faces because red is offensive. All right. They didn't hear me say that because they're busy with their fidget spinners. All right, so <laughs> it's such an easy thing. It's an easy thing, and everyone laughing paid for a pet rock. So don't worry about it. Like, if you've got a fidget spinner and you paid money, your parents' generation bought rocks that people painted and called them pets. All right, so spin your fidget spinner and be like, where's your pet rock, Mom? Because that will shut your parents up. I'm in Gen X, and we didn't do anything wrong, so we're good. So uh, an editor, though, you'll have a, a professor or a teacher who marks it all up and you get to the end and it says, like, these are great ideas, B plus or an A. Like, you'll get a good grade and you'll go back and be like, why is this all marked up? And it's all marked up because the person believes in what you're saying and wants it to be even better. It, they aren't trying to diminish you or destroy you, but an editor believes in you and will point you in an even better direction. Uh, Nathan, in a very simplistic way, Nathan, an editor, he goes up uh, to David, and he does what I think, there's like four things he does. Uh, the first thing is he gets under David's skin really, really quickly. Like he tells the story, and the Bible says that David burns with rage. Like David loses his mind and says, we need to kill that guy. But, oh, before we kill that guy, he needs to pay back four times what he stole. And then we need to kill that guy. Uh, and, and if you're David, like you actually have that much power. And you've just proved that by having someone killed. And so Nathan walks into the room and tells the story in such a way that he's able to get under David's skin really, really quickly. And he does this. The second thing I think an editor does is he asks really difficult questions. He tells him a story that is provoking a response. And an editor will ask you questions. If you have an editor in your life, will ask you questions that are actually difficult. They'll ask you questions, and you, like, you have a quick and smart response, but they ask you a question, and you're about to respond, and you go, ah, oh, dang, I think they're right. Like, they're asking me a question that I actually have to think about. An editor, the third thing an editor does is they tell you the truth. And you think that that's obvious, that all your friends tell you the truth, but they don't. Like, they shade what they tell you in the same way you shade what you tell your friends. Because sometimes you want to stay friends. And you know you don't have that editor role in someone's life, and they come to church, and they're wearing sandals, which is cool because it's, like, really hot out, but they've got socks under those sandals. And you say, how are you doing? They say, I'm doing great, you know. I think I've really achieved a better fashion sense. And you say, 
I think so too. And you say, oh, my phone, it's buzzing. I gotta, I'm sure this is important. I'm, I'm not on call or anything and it's an unknown number, but I need to answer. I, uh, this, this telemarketer could be selling me something important. It, like, you will lie, and then you will lie, and then you will lie, and then you will lie. That's, an editor tells you the truth, even when it's a risk for the editor to tell you the truth. Because ultimately, if somebody is giving you suggestions on your work or your life, you have the say in whether you take those suggestions or not. You have the say on whether you're going to let the editor change your voice for the better. So you're putting your trust in someone and if they're telling you hard truths or asking you difficult questions or getting under your skin, there's a lot of times when we will react like they're antagonizing us and push those edits away. I've done it, you've done it, where someone is trying to help us and we're not in a place or not in a mindset where we want that help or we allow that help to be in our lives. And that's why I think there's a fourth thing that an editor does is that they see it through. There are times when an editor will say something to you in your life and it's a really difficult thing and you may take the advice or you may not take the advice, but an editor is willing to stick with you even if you don't take that advice. And they're willing to put red marks on your paper or red marks on your life later on down the road because they're going to see it through because they believe your message is one worth hearing or that your life is one that matters and that they want you to be able to uh, get your message or the message of God's work in your life out to the world. So while an, an accountability partner is kind of uh, a guilt inducer, and if, you're in, if you have accountability partners, that's great. Uh, you can be in a relationship that has accountability, but you only feel guilty, whereas an editor holds you accountable and then talks about what are the steps that we're going to take in order to get to somewhere better. They look at your life and say, what are some small changes or maybe big changes that we can make in order to get your voice and your influence to a greater place or to a larger place or to a more influential place? The danger in being an editor, maybe you have an editor or maybe you are an editor for someone else. The danger is then an editor puts themselves in the position of non-power and the person who's being edited actually has the power. And so the editor gives these suggestions and kind of has to take the first step in vulnerability. I'm going to say some things that are true to you. And Nathan goes to David and says some things that are true to David. And David actually holds the power to exterminate Nathan, uh, to, get, to end his life. And Nathan is daring enough to go and say, here's some things I'm going to say to you, and lowers his position. And when you do that, it's all dependent on the person with the power. Are they, if you have an editor and you're able to lay yourself vulnerable or lay yourself out and say, here's my life or here's my work, tell me not just what you think, but tell me what you think could, I could do to make it better. Don't just criticize it, but give me suggestions for growth. The vulnerability that exists in that is wild. To go to someone and say, could you look at my life 
and just think about my life and then tell me like two things you think I could change about myself that would make things better? That's, like if you said that to someone, the first thing is the editor's going to be terrified because they're going to say, well, here's two things that are obvious, right? <laughs> and everybody knows them, but nobody's willing to say them because we're all afraid of your reaction. Like you're a jerk. But no one's going to tell you you're a jerk unless they love you enough to risk that. And you're not a jerk. I'm just kidding. This is, this is probably about me. All of you, not jerks. Please don't hate me. All right. <laughs> but when you end up uh, in this kind of relationship, there's a vulnerability that the editor has to take, like a risk that the editor has to take. And the response of the person, the David in the story, the response of the one being edited, determines the outcome of the whole story. David could say, Nathan, I don't like that you know this. Uh, everyone, I need David killed next, uh, or Nathan killed next. All right, there we go. Whoop. And then his cover is, remains intact until the pesky Lord tells another prophet. <laughs> but David lays himself vulnerable and repents and actually goes to the Lord and seeks, maybe there'll be mercy there, maybe I'll be able to, uh, like, maybe God will not follow through with the consequences of his own child getting, uh, of Uriah's wife uh, becoming radically sick and, and dying of that illness. Maybe my repentance or maybe my vulnerability before the Lord will change things. If you don't have an editor, um, it's not difficult to find one. Uh, because it depends on you, not on them. If you go to someone and say, like, what do you think is one thing that I could do better? And they say something, you say, ah, you're an idiot, and walk away. <laughs> then that person is no longer going to be your editor. And they're probably right. <laughs> if, if you want to have someone, like... I don't think there's anyone on this planet that doesn't want other people to be better people. And so going to people and saying, people who, maybe someone at your work who works with you, and you can say, what is something I could do in my end of our job relationship that would make things better for you? And they would say, oh, well, you never get this report done on time. If you got that done on time, everything would be easier. Awesome, I'll get that report done on time. But you have to be willing to take that criticism. You have to be willing to not give excuses. Uh, you could go to your, and this is dangerous, you could go to your kids and say, what do you think like, is one thing I could do better and be a better parent? And they might say, socks and sandals, bad idea, Dad. And you say, but my, what are you talking about? You're an idiot. Go play with your fidget spinner, right? <laughs> but they're right. <laughs> this is terrible. I didn't check to see if anyone was wearing socks and sandals on the way in and and I'm guilting you the whole sermon, but uh, David goes to him, uh, sorry, David, in his relationship with Nathan, as Nathan goes to David, David c controls the way the relationship is going to go, and if you want to have an editor, you get to control the way the relationship is going to go. To go to someone and say, how could I be better at this? How could I be a better person? Or how could I be better in our, either our working relationship or our family relationship? Or if you have a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you say, how could I be better at this? And they say something and you take that criticism and sometimes it stings, right? Like this stung for David. 
And you probably haven't committed adultery and then murdered people to cover it up. All right. I was just checking to see who was looking sideways when I said that. But, uh, but there is, like, you have failings, I have failings, but we want to be better. And so we go to the people who we believe love us and we ask them those questions and we let them speak into our lives. Now, the way the story ends, can, can I get the last slide back up? Uh, David has uh, more kids. Uh, Bathsheba gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon and the Lord loved him. Uh, Solomon. Now, the way that the Old Testament tells stories, sometimes, um, like when we tell histories, we look for scientific accuracy. In the Old Testament, when they tell histories, they're looking to make the story good. And so when it says, uh, like, it seems like when we read the story that these are all happening, one after another after another, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. But then, writing the Old Testament, they were willing to take liberties in order to make the king look uh, as good as they wanted the king to look. And so there's other parts, uh, mostly genealogies that we read, that tend to be more accurate. And there's other things, like there's genealogies in the New Testament, the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke, and they're completely different. Genealogies that lead to Jesus. Matthew's genealogy is what's called a royal genealogy, so it's kind of like this is why Jesus is king. And Luke's genealogy is more of like a true heredity or a true a DNA genealogy. And both of them would have been accepted. We would say, oh, this one's scientifically accurate, that one is made up. Well, both of them would be accepted as accurate uh, in those days. So the book of First Chronicles, and Chronicles tends to have lists of names, and that's why you are surprised that there's a book in the Bible called Chronicles. You've never read it. It's where you stop every time, every year when you try to read through the Bible, mid-February, and you're like, this is crap, Right? You don't say that out loud because maybe your pastor will hear you, but this is First Chronicles 3. It says this, these were the sons of David born to him in Hebron, and I didn't put it on the screen because I'm going to say these the wrong way because they're old Hebrew names and I don't want you to know. The firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinahem of Jezreel. The second, Daniel, the son of Abigail of Carmel, a Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephthiah, the son of Abital. Do you see this? The sixth, Ithrium, by his wife Egla. The six, these six were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months. Now, pay attention to this is the key part. David reigned in Jerusalem 33 years. This is where he had a palace with a rooftop garden where you could see Uriah's house. And these are the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. These four were by Bathsheba, daughter of Amiel. And then there's a whole bunch of other, five other kids. And they're all sons of David, besides his sons by his concubines. And Tamar was their sister. So David had one girl that's mentioned and all these boys. David's sons born to him in Jerusalem were Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. And these four were born by Bathsheba. The first son that David had with Bathsheba died. And then they have four more. And in 2 Solomon, they say, 
she gave birth to a son they named him Solomon because it's about to tell the story of Solomon and the other ones it's not interested in. But did you hear the name of David's third son? Nathan. Your editor, if you're willing to be that vulnerable in front of them, will become such an important person in your life that you're willing to name your kids after them. This relationship that I'm talking about is an incredibly difficult relationship because having the trust in someone to let them speak into your life and actually make changes that they say is an incredibly vulnerable place. But it will go so well. And if you're a young person that's still about to have children, you will begin to name your children after these people because next to your parents, they had more influence on you than everyone else. David names his third son Nathan. And when you read the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke, it goes through Nathan. Because it wasn't just Nathan doing something in David's life, it was God doing something in David's life. David's third son, Nathan, who you don't think about at all, named after a prophet who was willing to take a risk so that David could be great, ends up, his third son, ends up being uh, in the family line where we end up uh, with the Messiah, with Jesus. So the daring part is to actually have these conversations, to actually like want to be, uh, and this sounds like Joel osteen but you actually want to be the best you that you can possibly be. And you get there through really, really difficult conversations. But being willing to have those difficult conversations will change everything for you. So I'm going to pray that way for us, and then we're going to worship God. I put next steps in the bulletin on the right-hand side if you want to see in there. Things that you could do if you have a Nathan or you want a Nathan, and conversations that you maybe want to think about having. Especially, especially if you're a young person right now. If you're a person that's looking ahead at a lot of life, might as well make it awesome. But getting there is always difficult. It's, nobody flukes their way into greatness. You fluke your way into viral videos. You forget what yesterday's viral video was. But you don't fluke your way into a legacy of greatness. And you'll have difficult conversations that will get there and your life will matter for like God's kingdom in ways that you can't imagine. So let's stand. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I want to pray that you would give us uh, in this room the bravery to have Nathans. And then give us the graciousness to listen to Nathans. I know in my life, Lord, there's been times when I listen and every time it turns out great. And there's been times when I don't and every time, not great. And you would think, like many of us in this room would say this, you would think that we would learn. But it really is a, a radically difficult part of life. In our work life, in our family life, in our personal relationships, in school. God, I want to pray that you would give us... Um, that you would fill us with your spirit in such a way that we're willing to be just ripped open. 
that we're willing to hear our Nathan say, you are the man, and it should be the most negative thing we've ever heard. But give us the graciousness to grow, to have a legacy for your kingdom and for your gospel that is powered by the difficult conversations that people are willing to have for us. Free us from ourselves and give us the vulnerability to be able to hear your voice through people who are getting under our skin and asking really difficult questions. We pray this by your grace. May you have mercy on us, Lord. Amen.